Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 31C, an interview on Herbert Hoover and the start of the Great Depression with Robert McElvain. I'm excited to welcome Robert McElvain to the show today. Bob is a professor of history at Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi, and an expert on the Great Depression, a topic Bob has written a handful of books on, including The Great Depression, America 1929 to 1941, Down and Out in the Great Depression, Letters from the Forgotten Man, and Mississippi, the WPA Guide to the Magnolia State. He's also written about other things. His most recent book is The Times They Were a Change in, 1964, the year the 60s arrived and the battle lines of today were drawn. We're going to focus on the Great Depression, though, today and Hoover's attempts to solve it and where it started. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Uh, So if we're to tell the story of the Great Depression, where does that story begin? Is this a story that starts with the stock market, the Treaty of Versailles, like the Panic of 1907? Where does it begin? Well, let's see, the evolution of humans. No, we don't have to go back. <laughs> uh, but but um, I, I do want to go back uh, a little bit further even than, than like the Treaty of Versailles, um, because I think the, the, the critical thing is changes in the economy and the attitudes of government not kind of keeping up with the changes in the needs of the economy. Um, the Republican Party, when it was founded in the 1850s and on through the time of the Civil War and Reconstruction and a bit after that, was very much for the working man and was not like uh, they, they instituted an income tax. And Lincoln was very clear that it should be a graduated tax and people who earned more should pay a higher rate and all that sort of thing that, you know, Republicans today don't believe in. Well, by, <laughs> by the so-called Gilded Age and, and Mark Twain uh, coined mm-hmm. the term Gilded Age, we should now call it the first Gilded Age because we're mm-hmm. in a second mm-hmm. Gilded Age now, uh, meaning that this is not a golden age. It's one that looks gold on the outside, but underneath there's all the decay. There's extreme wealth at the top and and poverty uh, below. Um, During that period, uh, the Republican Party started switching in the other direction, although, of course, um, during the progressive era, actually, there were more progressive Republicans than there were Democrats with Theodore Roosevelt and others. But um, kind of William McKinley in the uh, the, uh, 1890s is a good example of where the Republicans were headed, probably better than the sort of detour Teddy Roosevelt took them on. Yeah. And so um, basically, um, beginning around that time, uh, there's a difference in outlook between the parties on the economy. Um, the, the the Democrats are still the very bad guys on race and all that. And <laughs> yep. better, but on the economy, uh, I guess the best summation of it was from William Jennings Bryan's uh, famous Cross of Gold speech in 1896 when he said, there are two ideas of government. There are those who believe that if you just legislate to make the well-to-do prosperous, that prosperity will leak through on those below. The democratic idea has been if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up and through every class that rests upon it. And that's basically been this difference all along, whether we do trickle-down economics, of course, kind of basically just comes straight from what he said. It will leak through to those below. Right. And the Republicans were wedded to that. To some extent, the a great maldistribution of wealth and income has existed in most societies and 
can question that morally, but as far as what it was doing to the economy may not have mattered that much until mass production comes in. And mass production with Henry Ford and all is coming along by the time of World War One, And then in the 1920s, it's really taken off. And the thing about mass production, it's great, but in order to keep the economy going, it needs mass consumption. And in order for the masses to consume, they have to be getting enough of the money to consume it. Um, And basically what was going on in the 1920s, productivity was increasing greatly. Wages were going up some, uh, Mm. profits were going up enormously, and the income is being more and more concentrated at the top. Significantly, um, the share of uh, income going to like the top 5%, the top 1%, even the top 1 one hundredth of percent peaked just before the economy collapsed at the end of the 20s. Interestingly, it reached about the same level in 2008 before the economy collapsed then. Uh, And the basic reason is, again, whatever you may think of the maldistribution morally, it just doesn't work in a uh, consumption-based economy. But during the 20s, with Harding and and Coolidge, not so much Hoover, I'll get back to that in a minute, Um, but they were very much in favor of a totally unregulated economy. The market, free market is God to be worshiped. And and, uh, Andrew Mellon, who was one of the richest people in the world and uh, was secretary of the treasury throughout uh, this period of Republican ascendancy from 1921 through he, oh, uh, sometimes we say uh, that three presidents served under Andrew Mellon. Mellon <laughs> <laughs> was totally uh, committed to cutting taxes and, and cutting taxes that were only being paid by the rich at the time. And that was exactly the wrong thing to be doing because it was um, taking more money, less, less of the money was available to the people who had to buy things to keep this, this mass production economy going. Um, the people uh, who could afford to buy uh, not one automobile, and automobiles were getting to be a really big thing in the 20s, um, who could afford to buy, you know, 100 automobiles, they weren't going to do that. They might, you know, like six right. or something, but they're not going to buy 100. And so, but the people out there who would want to buy them basically didn't have the money. And mm-hmm. so... Um, uh, th- this this is really the underlying problem leading to the depression, at least as I see it, um, that there's a couple of ways, a couple means two, there's more than two, there's a few ways is a better way to put it, uh, that you might be able to deal with that. One, you could have government intervention, uh, government could uh, go into deficit spending. There was no chance the views of, of the leadership was going to do that at the time. Um, you uh, uh, could try to sell the surplus abroad, um, but <clears throat> that simply wouldn't work because uh, yenless Chinese were no better than penniless Americans at buying things. You had to <laughs> yep, have yep. people who had money, and that meant the other industrializing or industrialized countries, and they were facing similar problems, and they can't all be selling to each other. And so uh, what they finally... Uh, well, a, a few things that are important. One thing during the 20s, they're they're undermining traditional values. I mean, the, these people, okay. Calvin Coolidge is like the epitome of traditional values. But for the economy to work, they've got to 
undermine all these Benjamin Franklin aphorisms, a penny saved is a penny earned. Right, uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't save for a rainy day. Uh, they called it the new era of eternal prosperity. Don't worry about tomorrow. And so uh, they, they, they're undermining all these things, um, trying to get people uh, to go ahead and buy. Um, and, and advertising is getting to be bigger and bigger. Um, the basic generic uh, message of advertising is, ah, oh, go ahead. You know, you, <laughs> you want that, just go ahead and get it. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow. Um, and that's so, so that kind of stimulates more demand. By the end, yeah. it, it was during the 20s that advertising started to be called an industry, which is kind mm. of weird when you think about it. You think of an industry producing things. Well, what advertising produces is consumption, not products. And so it's the other side. Mm -hmm. It was like 10% of the economy was going towards advertising by the end of the 20s. Wow. Um, and so um, and they, they would have... Uh, in advertising trade publications like ads uh, saying, go ahead and make me want. Um, it, it, this whole idea you should restrain yourself and all the old Protestant ethic things, they were, they, they were preaching that in some ways, but they, they, they couldn't promote that because it was the opposite of what they wanted. Okay, so people start, start wanting the things, but they still don't have the money. So right. what do you do? Well, let them buy it without the money. And the word credit, of course, in the sense of credit and debit had been around, uh, uh, again, since Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. maybe not quite that far, but uh, em emphasizing the word credit became a big thing in, uh, in, in the 1920s. And that sounds so much better than what it really is, debt. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, oh, this is to my credit. Oh, this is wonderful. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, they yep, didn't yep. yet have credit cards, but those cards we all carry around or sit in front of our computer with or whatever now. Right, uh, right. If they were called what they really are, debt cards, we'd be a little less. <laughs> a lot Absolutely. When you use them, uh, master card, let the uh, possibilities master you. Uh, master the possibilities <laughs> really means let the possibilities master you. So. Mm -hmm. So this worked for a while to keep the economy going in the 20s because mm -hmm. um, people could buy these things and, and be paying them off. But the problem with that, of course, is that eventually uh, you're going to run out of the credit. Uh, some, some later times, uh, uh, lenders keep willing to just keep raising your credit limit and everything. They, they were not quite going that far in the 20s. And so once somebody had kind of exhausted their credit, not only did they not have a chance to get credit to buy new things. They also couldn't buy new things with much of their current income because that was going to pay off past purchases. And so this is just a recipe for, well, Hoover and others kept saying the economy is fundamentally sound, but the basic problem is the economy was fundamentally unsound uh, because of all this. Um, so they're, they're changing all these values in the 20s and um, the, the people who uh, do have money, and, and you know, it was called a prosperity decade, the prosperity was not all that wide, uh, widespread. Like farmers, for instance, were pretty much in depression throughout the 20s. Um, right. They didn't keep official statistics on unemployment, but the best estimates are that unemployment was around 10% throughout this wow. period of prosperity. Um, but the people who did have money, um, they wanted more. And so we're looking for, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> which is sort of this whole idea and the way values are being overturned. Um, I, I, I think sometime around the 20s and certainly later, um, during the Depression and, and World War II, they sort of moved back towards the traditional values. But after that, after the post-World War II era, going back more and more, I think sort of the, uh, the anthem of the modern economy should be, I can't get no satisfaction. Because <laughs> the idea <laughs> is keep the consumer dissatisfied, they used to say in these advertising publications. If the consumer is satisfied, he's not going to buy anything, and that's no good for us. So uh, you don't don't want that. Um, so uh, people are looking to make more money. Well, the, the first big boom bubble in the 20s was in Florida real estate. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the automobile and building, and, and of course, the prosperity was, was largely because a lot of these new uh, products, automobiles weren't new, but as a real mess, the masses to buy them. It was new. Then they have radios. And for the automobiles, uh, th that stimulates um, the steel industry and, and all these things to build them, but also uh, building roads and concrete to build the roads and diners and motels and whatnot along the way. So those roads make it possible for those who have money to get away from the winters in the Northeast and go to Florida. And so Florida real estate starts really booming around 1923, 24 especially, and the prices just keep going up. Most of the people that start buying it never see it at all. Uh, it's advertised, you know, as beachfront property. And some people, again, they'd have to be rich enough, actually want beachfront property and plan to use it. But because the price keeps going up, people start buying it for speculation. And uh, that sounds familiar. might be 25 miles inland in a swamp really didn't make any difference because the only reason they were buying it and paying much more than it was worth was because they could count on somebody else a few months later paying them even more for it. And the only reason that person was doing it because so the, the classic bubble, uh, you know, it, it keeps expanding, and I don't know. Some people who are good at blowing bubbles can have them. Bursting, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, was, it was bound to burst. A couple of hurricanes came through and mm -hmm. caused that to, to collapse. But this was basically a dress rehearsal for what happened um, in the in the stock market then in the later twenties. Kind of the same thing. The, the traditionally <clears throat> people bought stocks as investments and expected to get dividends and all that. But increasingly in the later 20s, the idea was that we we're just going to see the prices go up and we're, we're doing it to, to speculate. Um, probably the best example of that, um, kind of the version of the internet boom around the beginning of the century um, was, was RCA, the uh, Radio mm, yeah. of America, this new thing. And the price just kept going up and up, uh, sort of like Amazon did at the beginning. They had no, they, they were never turning a profit. They weren't paying any dividends. <laughs> but the price uh, just 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 kept going up, and people thought this is this exotic new uh, thing from the uh, uh, you know technology, and everybody's going to have it. And all that was true, but it was going up crazily. Well. But in addition to that, and, and like the price of uh, RCA stock um, went up by, I don't remember the exact figure, but something like 80% uh, over one year. But you could buy without having the money, just like consumers could buy things without having the money. 
brokers would lend money to people to buy the stocks. Um, mm. It's called buying on margin, and this was this was kind of fantastic. Uh, you could um, you could put up say ten percent of the price and borrow the rest um, using the stock as the collateral for what you were borrowing. And yeah. so um, th- this this was kind of magical. Let me uh, give you an example here with RCA. Um, at the beginning of 1928, uh, if you put up the $10 for the $85 price and borrowed the remaining $75 from your broker, at the end of the year, you would have sold it for $420. The price had gone up that much. The stock itself had appreciated by 394%, which isn't bad. But if you if you had done this uh, borrowing, this ten dollar investment could bring back three hundred and forty one dollars and twenty five cents, four hundred twenty dollars less the seventy five you paid and the five percent interest, and the profit for your year was three thousand four hundred percent. So <laughs> this was wow. good. But the trouble yeah. is that um, this this whole idea of buying on margin works in the opposite direction once the price starts going down. For sure. Um, and the, the only reason the prices are going up is the prices are going up. Um, <laughs> yes, whatsoever yes. to the value of the company. Um, yeah. But people were, were so caught up in this. And again, like the public was sort of following the Dow Jones average the way they were following Babe Ruth's batting average and stuff. Oh. Um, but the public was not much into uh, the stock market, certainly as a percentage of what it was all worth. It was mostly uh, much, much richer people. So um, <clears throat> when, it, but they were so optimistic that like, uh, there were a couple of times when the stock market price dropped kind of precipitously uh, in, in 1928 mm. and earlier in 1929, but they kept saying, oh, it's going to go up. Um, by the time you get to the summer of 1929, this, this problem of not having enough buyers for the stuff that's being sold begins to really become evident uh, because, again, credit is exhausted for so many people. And as I said a minute ago, they, they also don't have all of their current income to buy more things with because they're paying off these other things. And so when that happens, um, uh, companies start seeing their unsold goods on their warehouse sh- shelves and they do the only sensible thing to do. They cut back production, which causes people to be laid off, which causes those people to have even less money. And so the the aggregate of this in the economy is that the already insufficient amount of money to buy the goods that are coming off the production lines becomes less. And that becomes a downward spiral where uh, more goods start piling up in the inventory, more people are laid off, and so on. This was already going on a few months before the stock market crashed, but people were uh, were just sort of ignoring it. Um, and uh, uh, again, the problem was that the economy was fundamentally unsound. Um, so uh, you get to uh, October of 1929. And over, it's not, not just a single day, but uh, a series of days for uh, several of the days within a week, culminating mm-hmm. in October 29th, uh, where the total collapse occurs. Uh, and, and here again, the, the leverage fits into this too, because as I said before, the collateral for the loan is your stock, and the stock suddenly plummets in value, and the loan gets called in by the lender. 
And the only thing they can do is try to sell it for whatever price they can get, but that's not going to be nearly enough. And so it keeps causing the prices to go down more and more. And so to the question of did the, did the stock market crash cause the depression? Well, if you mean it in the real sense of causing it, absolutely not. Uh, if you mean it in the sense of did it have something to do with the timing? Uh, yes. What it really was was more reflective of other problems already in the economy. Um, so um, when that occurred, uh, who, well, Hoover had been worried about that before. Okay. We're talking about Hoover, so let's get back to Hoover. He, yeah. <laughs> Hoover, um, Hoover obviously has a very bad reputation, and, uh, and for some of the things he did, uh, that that's accurate. Uh, he was basically a, a good person, uh, a, a progressive. There was a biography written of him a few decades ago called The Forgotten Progressive. Mm. Uh, he, he had... Um, uh, during uh, his career of getting richer and richer and finding um, engineering and so forth around the world. He was sort of like a military leader being abroad who didn't identify with a party. He didn't vote. He didn't say whether he was Republican or Democrat. And then he did these marvelous things that I won't get into because they were discussed in the previous episode, but just mentioned uh, organizing the Belgian relief and then coming back to the United States and doing the the food program in the United States during World War I, uh, and then uh, sort of supervising, saving Central Europe at the end of World War One, leading to him having this reputation as being this gruff humanitarian which is a pretty good description of him. And uh, both parties <clears throat> considered him as a possible presidential candidate in 1920, extremely popular. The thing, and he decided he was a Republican. Uh, again, it was discussed last time that Franklin Roosevelt was one of those who thought he would be a really good uh, person for this. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get a ticket where uh, he would be the Democrat. Hoover would be the Democratic nominee and FDR would be the vice presidential candidate, partly because FDR was uh, always imagining himself following the footsteps of Cousin. Absolutely. Yeah. The vice president was something to check off on that. But anyway, um, so, but Hoover decided he was a Republican. Um, the Republicans knew he was a great candidate, but uh, as, as one of the party bosses said at the 1920 Republican convention, the times don't demand a good candidate. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're going, you know, people are going to reject everything with the Democrats because of Woodrow Wilson and it's uh, returning in the other direction. And so they got what the bosses really wanted, a pliable man in terms of Warren G. Harding um, and, and that they could sort of do as they wanted with and he would let all sorts of corruption go on around him and all the rest of that. Uh, and Hoover wound up as Secretary of Commerce and as they said, he was the greatest Secretary of Commerce ever, which could seem like a sort of backward compliment because <laughs> who remembers anything? But he really did do a lot of good stuff, but that was talked about the last time as well. And so uh, by 1928, uh, they, they, they uh, well, uh, back up a little, Hoover uh, did put out a book, I think it was 1923, called American Individualism. And yeah. like with most books, I can speak from my own experience, some people read the title, but most people won't read the book. And so the people 
thought he meant this sort of rugged individualism, every man for himself mm-hmm. kind of thing, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is an interesting thing. It occurred to me some years ago, try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> physics, <laughs> an easy thing to possibility do. in physics. Yeah. You could pull up one foot. And not, it's just interesting. This is a recommendation for people, and it's absolutely <laughs> possible. Well, Hoover wasn't into that. Hoover... Hoover believed that people should help each other. He was a Quaker, and uh, yeah. he, he believed in volunteerism, uh, yeah. that, that people should voluntarily be giving to charities because this was not only good for the people receiving the charity, but it was good for the person giving the money voluntarily. This was good you know, good for them as human beings, good for their soul. Uh, and that's kind of what he was was preaching, a, a sort of cooperation, but not being imposed by the government. Um, and so, but he had used government like, you know, he, he organized those things back at the beginning of World War One and during World yeah. War One and everything. But he got, a, he, he raised a lot of money privately, but he also yeah. got government money in, in as well. Um, but he was he was somebody who had really strong beliefs, and you know uh, that could be a good thing. He was inflexible. And it's interesting that that different words for kind of the same quality can sound good or bad. Uh, yeah. Inflexible, steadfast, but like bullheaded or unwilling to look at evidence, and you know meaning pretty much the same thing. I'm just going to keep going, and this was yeah. really. The biggest difference, I, I'm hesitating to, to say biggest difference, but I probably was the biggest difference between Hoover and FDR. Um, FDR famously said um, uh, before he was elected when he was running in 1932, take a method and try it. If it doesn't work, throw it away and try something else. But above all, try something. Well, Hoover yeah. never actually said this, but if he were, if we were to put his <laughs> beliefs in, yeah. in, in that context, he would say, Take the method because there was only one. Try it. If it doesn't work, try it again. If it doesn't work, try it again. But above all, keep trying the same thing. <laughs> he was a believer in how the market could work. He was a believer in the uh, it's absolutely essential to balance the budget. Uh, and and uh, he was a believer that uh, um, giving, giving out money to people, the dole, uh, yeah. would undermine their self-reliance. And of course, all that was true. FDR believed that as well. And it's, it's true. It can undermine their self-reliance. But, but the thing is, if people die, uh, their self-reliance is undermined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They starve to death. And, uh, FDR didn't really believe in that either, but he didn't believe in keeping people alive. And there was no other, no other uh, uh, opportunity to do it. But Hoover... Um, did do much more in the face of an economic uh, collapse than any president before him had done. Um, and, and so again, he, he believed in the free market, but only up to a point. And he believed in government intervention as long as it didn't unbalance the budget too much. And as long as it wasn't like permanent, it was just for an emergency. Mm-hmm. So uh, he initially, oh, and I should mention that, that he had, um, seen these problems in the economy and had, in fact, um, 
earlier in 1929, after he became president, had had his broker quietly sell a lot of his stocks because he he saw things were were going downhill. A little of yeah. that with uh, Calvin Coolidge, um, his wife, when Coolidge decided not to run in 1928. Um, Later, uh, his wife said, Papa saw a depression coming. Well, I don't think Coolidge, I don't think Coolidge saw a yeah. depression coming. He wanted to put his feet up on the desk again, uh, and, which, which he did as president, but that's another story. He never did do anything. Uh, right, right. But um, so Hoover had, had sold a lot of his own stocks. But the thing is, when, um, when things seem to be getting better, people don't want to hear anything about that. And, and in a political sense, you know, uh, how are you going to do something that would cause, again, deflating the bubble without bursting it is really a difficult thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it's first so, years, like so first he, months in presidency, yeah. Yeah, Hoover kind of couldn't do that much about it. Uh, and he, but, of course, he had talked about how this we're in this eternal um, era of prosperity uh, within – uh, the day with the help of God when we will see the end of uh, poverty in America. Right. And he was almost right. It was just another P word. It was the end of prosperity, not poverty. <laughs> Zinger. <laughs> his administration. He was not, I mean, he and his policies were not responsible right. for this. Uh, right. However, um, his approach to it, and, and, and part of this, uh, Hoover is sort of in the right place at the wrong time. He could have been a good mm. president had he, mm -hmm. say, in 1920 been chosen by one of the parties and won then and prosperity was going on. But Hoover's whole experience was that you keep succeeding. Uh, you know, you, you yeah. keep getting prosperous. And so he couldn't kind of relate to what was going on with these people. Like he infamously said at one point, I think it was <clears throat> probably in 1931, uh, I noticed that uh, more people uh, have decided to leave their previous employment for the more <laughs> lucrative job of selling apples on street corners. <laughs> what? The Washington apple growers had decided that they could sell apples by letting unemployed people sell them on street corners. Yeah. Yeah, um, and Hoover had never left <clears throat> his previous job unless it was for a better job, and he just couldn't relate to this. But oh this, wow, this sounded yeah. so uncaring. He wasn't really uncaring, but he sure sounded that way. Yes, yes, but he just didn't get he, it. He did organize. Um, he did the. He, he believed very much that the key was restoring confidence. He was singularly. Uh, a poor person to restore confidence, though. He was, you know, very <laughs> dour and, you know, yeah. the opposite FDR in that regard. Um, another good example of that, another famous, uh, maybe the most famous quotation from FDR in his first inaugural address, uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, blind, unreasoning terror. Uh, that's pretty much the same thing Hoover had been saying all along to restore confidence. But when mm -hmm. he said it, especially after a year, another year got passed, when FDR said it, they swooned. This is wonderful. Right, uh, right. <laughs> but also he was new. So FDR, I mean, Hoover um, um, tried to, he, he understood the need for keeping up purchasing power. Uh, he didn't seem to understand what, <clears throat> like Mellon's tax policies and things had, had done to make that worse. <clears throat> He, one of the first things he did was to 
in addition to saying that um, uh, the economy is fundamentally sound, um, he called together top uh, business leaders and got them to pledge not to cut wages for a year, which was a good thing. However, they didn't pledge not to lay people off. So the people who kept their jobs, actually, since prices were going down for a little while, they were better off for that year. But the economy as a whole, the buying power just kept falling because more and more people were being thrown out of work. It reminds me of Calvin Coolidge again. Uh, uh, when the Depression was, was going on, uh, he thought about it for quite a while, and he said, when more and more people are thrown out of work, unemployment results. <laughs> And he thought for, another year, thought for another year and made one of his famous very short statements. He said, the solution to unemployment is work. Wow. And unfortunately, we didn't have his brilliance uh, still. To build. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. uh, so, um, so Hoover did that. And, and, you know, that was fine for the people who didn't, uh, who stayed employed and their wages didn't go down. But after a year, they started cutting the wages as well as letting more people off. And um, the thing that was really needed um, was um, well summed up. Uh, of course, John Maynard Keynes is associated uh, with, with the basic theory, uh, and he was writing about that well before his uh, basic theory book came out in the mid-30s. Um, but there were other people talking about it. And uh, one example, uh, uh, these two economists, uh, Waddell Kitchings and William Trufant Foster, uh, wrote an article called When the Horse Balks uh, in 1930. <clears throat> and the way they put it was, uh, if anyone still doubts that our economic troubles are mainly mental, let them consider what would happen if the United States declared war today. Everybody knows what would happen. Congress would immediately stop the interminable talk and appropriate $3 billion, $5 billion, $10 billion, mm, where would the money come from? They wouldn't worry about it. And they suggest that the solution to the depression is pretend we're at war. They were exactly um, Mitch McConnell infamously said when uh, Obama's presidency started, well, you can learn a lot from history. History teaches us a lot. And if you look at what happened during the Great Depression, uh, it shows that spending doesn't work because the Depression was still going on in 1939. <laughs> uh, yes, well, that's true, but it does not show that uh, spending doesn't work. He said World War right. II ended the Depression. Exactly. Because they spent like that. If they had spent <laughs> like that in 1933, which Roosevelt was willing to, to go into deficit spending, but he wasn't willing to, to go in the, the massive way that was needed. But World War II totally confirmed what Foster and Catchings had said, what Keynes had said, uh, that, that mm. this is the way you do it. Of course, you've got to find some way. But, I mean, the massive debt in World War II was, was paid down remarkably quickly, so, so, so that did work. Hoover did other things like, uh, again, trying to restore confidence. He put together uh, presidential committees. He was trying to collect suggestions from the public. Uh, um, the president, the president's uh, emergency committee on unemployment or unemployment, uh, the president's organization for unemployment relief, um, and they would put out like ads. There was one that showed a working man saying, "I'll see it through if you will," 
Um, no, that didn't, that didn't do much to pay the rent or, or, or your stomachs or, or uh, anything like that. So um, yeah. if for, for a while, this great engineer and this gruff humanitarian, uh, people would sort of stick with them. But when month after month, things kept getting worse, um, he did other things, though. He, he, um, um, the most important probably was creating the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which FDR yeah. used much more uh, than he did. But Hoover, as I said a few minutes ago, was, didn't want to give relief directly to people. Um, right. He, he thought this would destroy their self-reliance, their initiative. He didn't seem to worry about the self-reliance and initiative of banks, though. He was willing to give them a lot of money. And, you know, you could make economic arguments for that, like, again, the uh, 2008 collapse and, and whether this is terrible, they're giving all this money to the people who caused it, but, like, what's the choice? The, the whole world economy will collapse if you don't. Um, and, and so... Uh, but the way this was perceived in the public and, you know, with a lot of accuracy to it was he's giving money to the rich people and he won't give money. Like there was a, a, a drought that was sort of the prelude to the dust bowl that was in Arkansas during the uh, and surrounding areas during uh, the time Hoover was still president. And he would send, uh, you know, um, pig feed and cattle feed. He would he wasn't worried about the uh, the farm animals losing their self-reliance, uh, but he wouldn't send any food for the people. And so all of this just increasingly produced this reputation as this guy is totally uncaring. Uh, and he just he just basically wouldn't change his ways because he was afraid of debt and he believed that there is only one way and this is the way and we just have to keep doing it. And, and you mentioned in passing the RFC, the Reconstruction Finance Corp. Can you explain really quickly what that is for folks? Well, um, um, not not really, but, <laughs> but but I mean, basically, the the idea was to use the government to um, put money into things that would would help, and particularly it was being used under Hoover to prop up the banks. But it could be used for other things, and FDR used it for other things. Another thing that that Hoover did was try to again uh, keep demand up by um, <clears throat> investing in public works projects. Um, that was on a much bigger scale under FDR, but he was doing it. Uh, and and uh, one of uh, one of them was uh, building what came to be called the Hoover Dam, and right. so unpopular they changed the name to the Boulder Dam. But later, some Republican administration changed it back to the Hoover Dam. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and 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 he kept you know trying to stimulate private charity, and that worked. The, the amount of money people were donating to private charities went up by by huge amounts. Um, but the thing was. This this disaster was so big that it was yeah. beyond that working. It, it needed the government uh, to go in. Oh, another thing as far as uh, uh, trying to maintain or rebuild confidence, um, the word that has, was traditionally used for these economic collapses. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hoover says that, that that's terrible. 
the word depression had been occasionally used before, but he decided to emphasize depression, you know, like they're going along and then there's a little dip of depression and it comes back. But so he became totally associated with this word and this word came to be probably even worse than panic, but he was yeah. <laughs> trying to use it to not sound so bad. So. Uh, and I, I want to ask you, know, what made this depression so much worse than previous ones? You described earlier the big house of cards that had been built. What made the collapse worse than all the others and in and, and such a hard place to fix? Well, I, I, the, the biggest thing, again, is that this was the first one that <clears throat> occurred when the economy was really dependent on mass consumption. So it's just that the house of cards had been built so much bigger than ever before. That's why the collapse was bigger. Yeah, well, uh, maybe not just, but I think that's okay. that's, that's the biggest reason. And then uh, they did other things that were counterproductive, like uh, <clears throat> Hoover uh, um, decided to try to raise taxes because uh, the, right. uh, the budget was unbalanced, and that was that was not a good idea. <laughs> Interestingly. Yeah. Uh, FDR criticized him uh, for for uh, being a spendthrift. Uh, FDR gave a speech in, in the 1932 campaign in Pittsburgh where he said that he, he was spending more money and, and uh, uh, <laughs> a 25% increase in, the, in spending, and this was terrible. And mm -hmm. FDR came in and immediately started spending much more than that. The right. founders were sitting around and they said, well, what, what can we do about what you said in this uh, speech in Pittsburgh, and one of them said, the only thing you can do is deny you were ever in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, whatever he tried didn't seem to work, and his reputation kept getting worse. Um, the reputations of big businessmen, bankers, were just going down the tubes. So, so I can only imagine that Hoover's trying all these things, and, and he has this reputation of being the guy that fixes things. He was the CRB, yeah. you know, he's the guy who handled all this stuff before, but this time it's not working. That must have been really demoralizing for him. How did he weather that disappointment? Uh, were there any points where he gave up or anything like that? I, you know, I'm, I'm not a uh, Hoover biographer. I, I don't know that much mm -hmm. about, you know, specifics of it. Clearly, it was uh, very upsetting to him. I'm pretty sure that he would never reach the point of giving up, though. That was just not in yeah. his nature. But, you know, this isn't working, but yet, you know, it's the only thing that can work. And it, and it, <laughs> just keep he trying. He'd do these other things around the edges, but the, the mm -hmm. only thing, and it's understandable. I mean, the, the idea yeah. that a government can spend a whole lot more money than it's taking in, and then what, you know? Uh, but the not understanding that, a government can reach the point where just like an individual who does that is in a lot of trouble. Um, <clears throat> but it's not the same thing as an individual having to balance their budget. And after all, they weren't, <laughs> they were uh, encouraging people to uh, uh, spend more than they had coming in all along to keep the economy going before that. But he could never, never uh, bring himself to do that. And, and I'm curious, one of the aspects, one of the things that Hoover did that I don't think we've, we've dove into yet is as I understand it, he started lying about the economy's performance. He started lying about how many unemployed people there were. He had changed the statistics. Uh, and it's easy to look at it and be like, well, that's terrible. That's really dumb. But could it also be looked at through this other lens of the economy really is how people feel about it? And maybe he thought that lying about it would encourage people to think things were better and then they'd spend more. Because, you know, it's so much people just got to spend more. Like, they got to. We have to somehow get people to stop putting dollars under the mattress. We have to keep money flowing through the economy. 
Yeah, that, that, that that's a good point. Um, he, he, he would say things, well, he would say, well, nobody has actually starved. <clears throat> that wasn't really true. I mean, not right. not a high percentage starved. A lot of people were, were very hungry. I mean, there were people, uh, one, one helpful suggestion, I'm saying uh, facetiously helpful, uh, that some, uh, uh, I think it was some the Princeton eating clubs or something, they were saying that uh, they should use like the half-eaten rolls and uh, leftover uh, pieces of steak and stuff to uh, give to the poor. Uh, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I suppose is better than nothing. Um, yeah, but, uh, right. a, a lot of people would go through the trash cans outside of restaurants getting stuff that was thrown out. Uh, yeah. That those trash cans were an inter- intermediary step. Uh, it would go on to garbage dumps and people would go through garbage dumps and um, a couple of uh, anecdotes about that. There was a, a woman who uh, said she was in the practice of taking her glasses off when she was eating a piece of meat from the garbage dump, so she wouldn't see the rockets if they were there. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> there were people in, in rural areas who uh, ate weeds, which, you know, I mean, dandelions yeah. are actually used by master chefs sometimes, but they would say they would know which weeds to eat because they would see which ones the cows ate, and the cows knew which ones were poisonous. So, wow. Um, and so, I mean, it, it, it starts to upend all the uh, the traditional structures, yeah. like gender structures, and because the man is supposed to be the provider, and uh, <clears throat> the men, uh, unemployment, it's sort of irony that um, women benefited, I put that in quotation marks, to some extent from the discrimination against them in that the jobs that largely disappeared were industrial jobs that the women were excluded from, whereas things like being a teacher, well, teachers, they had to keep teaching. They might not pay them uh, every other month or something. Right, right. Uh, They were household uh, employees and this sort of thing. And so in many cases, men found themselves without work and more and more, especially during the Hoover administration, because there was still this kind of feeling that everybody and Hoover certainly believed this that everybody's kind of responsible for himself and you know you yeah. get what you deserve and during the 20s as the majority of people were doing better again not quite as better as the, not nearly as better as the people at the top but they were kind of feeling good about that patting themselves on the back I, you know I, I I'm doing better uh, yeah and so when it suddenly turns around it's kind of hard not to blame yourself and particularly mm, yeah. not when Kind of the extent of how how bad things are in the entire economy. People kind of they start keeping to themselves and not seeing some of their friends and neighbors and realizing they're in the same situation because they're so right. embarrassed about being that way themselves. Oh yeah, that, yeah. That was another thing uh, that <clears throat> FDR kind of change by making it very clear that this is a a national disaster that we're dealing with on a national basis. And then by having relief programs where people would come together and and see other people in the same situation. Uh, For a lot of people, it's easier to believe that something is my fault than, well, no, look at this guy. That can't be his fault. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. So after several years of this Great Depression, unsurprisingly, Hoover loses Mm re-election. 
But before FDR is sworn in, Hoover tries to get Roosevelt to sign off his support uh, for a plan that Roosevelt refuses to do. Can you tell me more about what's happening during this final stretch of Hoover's presidency, uh, a stretch where, as I understand it, a ton of banks start failing also? Yes. Um, okay. So so Hoover, um, and then talking about uh, how he was feeling in all this, uh, as, as it became clearer and clearer that Roosevelt was going to win the election by yeah. a landslide, yeah. People were were turned against him uh, enormously, and it's it, it's it's kind of fascinating uh, talking again about what he had done uh, uh, <clears throat> during World War One and after World War One. He was such a hero. Uh, yeah. There were yeah. streets named after him in in uh, Europe, Hooverstrasse or Rue de Hoover. Uh, well, it was named after him during his presidency, wow. where shanty towns were called Hoovervilles, and so right, yeah, right, that, that's got to hurt. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and he, he, he again, still believing that this way that I'm doing things is the only way; it's the right way. Um, and finally, uh, his last big speech—I think it was the last one, but at least one of the last ones in the campaign—he started mm-hmm. talking about. The, uh, the witches' cauldrons that have boiled and bubbled in Russia are coming here, basically accusing mm. him of being a communist. And, mm. um, and but, but, you know, yeah, oddly, it, it seems to me at least that the more, not that the people, most people wanted communism, um, right. certainly not if they knew what it really was, uh, right. <laughs> but uh, the idea that he was, that Roosevelt might, be sort of more socialist, and socialism has yeah. been very popular. <laughs> you know, people talk about, could, uh, well, if Trump is in jail, can he run in 2024? Well, Eugene V. Debs ran for president in 1920 from the Atlanta yep. Penitentiary where Woodrow Wilson had put him for speaking freely, <laughs> basically, yep. uh, and, and got about a million votes. Uh, so um, it seems to me that, well, well uh, Roosevelt was not really talking much in anything but generalities, like about a new deal for the American people. Um, but not really except in maybe one speech outlining much of what that really meant. And I think the more Hoover and some others attacked him as being like a socialist probably helped him some because, well, this capitalism thing isn't seeming to work very well. Um, and maybe uh, we need to turn to that. So that's how uh, you know Hoover was just out of it by that time. And so then after Roosevelt was elected, um, he, um, you know, at that point, uh, it's all the way till March until the new administration comes in. Right, right. And even worse than that, there's a lame duck session of Congress. Congress normally met, had a session that started in December after the election. So Mm -hmm. election years, that Congress that met after the election was the old Congress because the new one didn't come in until the new year. Right. And so right. people who had been rejected by the voters were <laughs> right. making the rules. It's so, the saddest party. <laughs> Hoover's trying, you know, things are getting worse and worse. And Hoover's saying, we have to restore confidence. I need you to come and endorse my policies. And Roosevelt, right. endorse your policies. He didn't say this. He probably said it to people around him. But that's the last thing that would restore confidence. People want to hope that something different's going to happen. Mm, so he's yeah. not about to do that. Plus, um, 
after all, coming in with things in absolute collapse is a good place to start. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, only up, so. you can only go up, hopefully. <laughs> so, got it, got it. So, what is the uh, legacy of Hoover's attempts to answer the Great Depression? What what do we learn? from what he tried and how he failed. Well, you or any listeners, uh, I'm, I'm hoping you have a large number of listeners, uh, <laughs> who, who may have uh, read to their children the Berenstain Bears bike lesson, uh, where the, the father bear keeps teaching the, the kid how to ride the bike and doing it all the wrong way. And he, each time the kid says, that was a very good lesson for me on what not to do. Well, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what Hoover provided. Uh, in other words, to be, to be open to more other possibilities and not just stick to one way. To not, um, uh, not think that um, this, and, and again, it's kind of unfair to Hoover to just lump him into trickle-down economics. He was not as right. bad in that as, as others. But <clears throat> one of the things that he did was to show that that, that doesn't work. And the, um, <clears throat> the classical economics of a totally free market, and, you know, I'm absolutely in favor of capitalism, but not without restrictions. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. After World War II, Winston Churchill said, uh, democracy is the worst of all possible political systems, except for every other one that's ever been tried. <laughs> right. <laughs> Famous quote. Yeah. The American <laughs> fathers understood something like that. They were very worried yeah. about the excesses of democracy, so they set up checks and balances. And I think right. the same thing right. should be said about capitalism. It's the worst of all economic systems, except for all other economic systems. <laughs> yeah. So like we need a, a political system based on democracy but with checks and balances, we need right. capitalism with checks and balances. Right. And so um, the, the, the totally unrestrained market was discredited in classical economics for about a half century until the late 1970s, and as Reagan came in, yeah. some of these people started coming up with these fanciful things about what caused the depression that didn't really cause yeah. it. Like the Smoot-Hawley tariff was a terrible right. thing, made things worse, but it could hardly cause something that happened uh, more than a year before. Right. So, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, some of these people, Amity Schleus in her book, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, I wrote a very long and scathing review of that. Ooh. Because she's trying to say, oh, if they had just let the free market work, it would have all turned out. And she says such things as, um, no government usurps the function of the market, for instance, in having the, the Food and Drug Administration. Well, you think about what that means. Well, the market will take care of that. If, if people die right. from, from drugs that will kill them or from bad food, well, then people will stop buying it. Uh, you know, so, uh, but that, that way of thinking started coming back in the 1980s and over the last 40 years or so, yeah, more and yeah. more the idea of trickle-down economics has, has come back. But for a half century, Hoover's failures and ultimately Roosevelt's successes. I mean, he, yeah. he, he kind of, for many years, <clears throat> was not curing the depression, but he was making it easier to live with it. Um, yeah. and, and then ultimately the, the spending in World War II that showed that yeah. indeed spending does work. So, well, The last question I got for you, what lesson in leadership can we learn from Hoover's experience during this time? 
Well, again, the, the same sort of thing. Let me bring up another big event in Hoover's yeah. administration, um, which was the, the bonus army that had been yeah. created. Yeah. Congress had, excuse me, had passed a bonus act in the mid-20s uh, promising veterans of World War One a bonus that wasn't supposed to be paid until 1945. Great sort of thing. You get the votes of veterans and not going to cost anything until sometime down the line. Well, <laughs> yeah. once so many veterans became unemployed, they said, we need the money now, and they wanted it paid, and so many unemployed, <clears throat> they started uh, coming, uh, riding the rails, or <clears throat> however they could get to Washington and camping out to uh, lobby with their feet, uh, Congress to pass the bonus. Um, and Hoover was concerned about these people being there, um, but he didn't want to use violence against them. Uh, um, he finally decided right, right. many of them stayed around after Congress uh, had ended its session. <clears throat> they had no place to go. They were in like a shantytown, a Hooverville uh, in Washington. Uh, and, and Hoover... Um, had the military move them out, but he told them not to do this with violence. However, the right. man who was in charge, he was telling not to do it with violence, was Douglas MacArthur, and he, he went in with fixed bayonets and burning the buildings and everything. And so this created um, the, these images, uh, photographs on the front page of papers of burning buildings with the Capitol's home in the background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hoover would have lost anyway, but he would... Yeah, that was it. Yes, because he... He felt he had to take responsibility for it, even though his orders had been huh. disobeyed, because it, that would mean, you know, I'm not really in control and you know, ah. charge. And so he he took the blame for it. Um, and and so um, I, th I think the the um, the lessons are: be sure if you're going to be a leader to pick the right time. <laughs> Because you have, you have, you have and, and of course, as it's usually attributed to Yogi Berra, that predictions are difficult to make, especially with uh, yes. the future. Uh, yeah. But actually, it was the physicist Niels Bohr who first said it. But anyway, oh, uh, okay. the future is difficult to predict. But I mean, uh, again, I think Hoover probably would have gone down as maybe not a great president, but a good president. And uh, he won and been nominated and won in 1920. But he was, right. his experience was just totally wrong for uh, the time when he was president. <clears throat> If you've enjoyed this interview uh, with Bob and want to hear more, please visit robertsmcelvain.com and check out any of his numerous books on the Great Depression, such as The Great Depression, America 1929-1941, Down and Out in the Great Depression, Letters from the Forgotten Man, or check out his latest book, The Times They Were A-Changin', 1964, the year the 60s arrived and the battle lines of today were drawn. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. This was great. Thank you, Kenny. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, harass them about listening until they are excited to pass an hour discussing the four-way presidential race and corrupt bargain of 1824, and then write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. 
This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, it's time to really crash into modern U.S. history with the man who ended the Great Depression, saved American democracy, and led us through World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I will somehow fit his life and administration into an hour. It's gonna be fun. Next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.